think the conventional medicine doctors look at functional medicine doctors as being, uh, you know, granola eating, you know, flakes <laughs> that that believe in spirituality and believe in prayer and all the other things. And the functional medicine doctors, you know, look at the conventional medicine doctors uh, and say, you know, it's it's basically diagnose and adios. Here's your problem. Here's a medication. When you have a uh, a genetic defect, let's say an ALS or Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever it is, the gene becomes not able to produce a protein in its, in its right sort of three dimensional structure, and that's that's what causes misfolding. But I believe that that viral infections create the same mutation that leads to a misfolded protein, just as a genetic cause would. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. special guest, Dr. Jay Lombard. After about a year or so of trying to make this interview happen, we finally made it happen. In my opinion, from what I can see, he is one of the leading neurologists really taking on the most difficult cases of neurodegeneration. In this episode, we talk all about why, what drives Dr. Lombard to, you know, as he puts it, why doesn't he just go for treating migraines or, you know, doing something like carpal tunnel, which apparently, as he puts it, is easy to treat. He talks about his neuroscientific perspective on the meaning of life. We talk a little bit about his book, uh, The Mind of God, which goes into all of that. We talk about functional medicine versus conventional medicine and why there's so much controversy and conflict between these two and always has been. We talk about how much of mental illnesses and neurodegeneration may be due to genetics or the environment, how emotions and mindset improve health outcomes in patients with terminal illnesses, what a fever can teach us about preventing neurodegeneration, and the interesting role of aspirin in keeping brains healthy. Before we get into the episode, I want to shout out Dr. Bill Schindler's virtual cooking courses that he offers. Uh, He was on my podcast a while ago now. And he is really the authority on preparing your own ancestrally consistent food from scratch. Uh, Food that is nourishing, food that has a very high bioavailability of nutrients, that is very easily digestible, and food that is incredibly nutritious and delicious. He has courses ranging from making your own fresh sourdough croissants to making your own cheese like mozzarella and ricotta and all these beautiful things. And he has a course on vegetable fermentation as well. And that's just to name a few. He has a ton of different courses. By filling out the form that I've linked below, you can actually tailor courses in length and in the exact topics that you actually actually want. They can tailor it right to you. You can use code LIVEDAMNWELL to get 10% off of these courses. And check out the link in the description. You will not be disappointed. Now... I've talked about slow-release magnesium before from Jigsaw Health. They have a very cool formulation, and magnesium, for anybody wondering, is an essential mineral that you must get from your food that is now becoming incredibly popular, but I believe that there's some nuances with magnesium. First, it's important to consider the form of magnesium. The Jigsaw Health slow-release technology magnesium is not only a form called magnesium malate, which actually has additional benefits beyond just magnesium. So it's not only potentially anxiolytic, which means it decreases anxiety and stress and may improve sleep, but it also is in a slow release tablet, which means that it actually is supposed to improve the bioavailability because you're slowly absorbing the magnesium throughout the day. As I understand it, 
if you just take a giant bolus of magnesium, you're going to remove some of it. You're going to eliminate it because your body just can't handle that much at once. So by making it a slow release, you're actually increasing the absorption that your body can get from the magnesium, which means you're not just peeing or pooping out the magnesium that you're spending your hard-earned money on. Second, this formulation also includes some of the B vitamins, including uh, folate in the form methyl tetrahydrofolate and vitamin B6, both of which are actually cofactors for magnesium and which also, in my experience, have helped me with, with stress, anxiety, and with improving my sleep because, for example, vitamin B6 is involved in the process of making melatonin. Because you're a loyal listener of this podcast, you can get $10 off of slow-release magnesium using code LIVEDAMWELL at the link in the description. Now, let's get on with this episode with Dr. Jay Lombard. All right, welcome everybody to the Live Damn Well podcast. Today I have with me an amazing guest, Dr. Jay Lombard, a visionary of the mind and brain, a practicing neurologist for 25 years, a speaker and author of several best-selling books, including The Brain Wellness Plan, Freedom from Disease, and The Mind of God, which have not only put functional medicine for brain health in the public eye, but have also spurred important conversations regarding spirituality, God, and faith in a world which has been consumed by nihilism. Dr. Lombard, it is truly an honor to talk to you today. Thank you. The honor is mine. Thanks, Jorge. So I want to get started with your uh, TED Med talk in 2012, which really, uh, you know, as you put it in several other interviews, that sort of launched you into the public eye um, as sort of a, as in your words, a contrarian, where you started to talk about the limitations in in psychiatry, how there we have really no biomarkers to assess uh, several psychiatric illnesses. Uh, and really the problem is if we don't have biomarkers, as I understand it, we can't look into the root cause. Uh, and if we can't look into the root cause, we can't think about root cause solutions. And, you know, you, you had a good example, which was you go into your cardiologist and you say that you have chest pain and the cardiologist looks at you and says, yep, you have chest pain, right? It's like, you're, you're trying to treat the chest pain. You're not trying to look at what is underlying that chest pain. You also hint to this role of the immune system uh, in psychiatric illnesses and neuropsychiatric disorders. You talk about this mind-brain connection where it's not really separate. We have the mind influencing the brain, the brain creating these feelings, thoughts, and experiences. Uh, is my summary here correct of the talk? And you know what has changed since then? <laughs> That's the best summary I've ever heard of, of my, my thoughts about uh, neurology and psychiatry ever. So thank you for summarizing it so well. Beautiful. Um, I'm glad to hear that. You, you know, what what has uh, sort of changed since then? Because I imagine that you've had a lot of uh, breakthroughs since that since that 2012 TED Talk. Um, so can you sort of walk me through uh, since that, uh, I guess, time of, of, of you being sort of revolutionary in this field? What have you begun to learn from, you know, working with your clients from uh, or not clients from your patients from um, your own research? Walk me through that. Sure. So I think that uh, one of the biggest issues that I think people are facing with are autoimmune diseases, correct? So there's been an upsurp in lupus and other uh, immunological diseases. And I think that what people need to understand about autoimmune diseases is that when we frame it as being an autoimmune disease, uh, we're saying it's idiopathic. I mean, we don't know what the cause of the autoimmune process actually is. So my research over the last five years has really pinpointed that viral infections particularly are what evokes autoimmune diseases. So um, what I found that is if we try to suppress the immune system in autoimmune diseases, which is what's conventional, if you have an autoimmune disease, you take you know a, a steroid or several different types of steroids, but what if that's actually suppressing the normal immune response to an infection you are basically kicking the, the, the can down the, the road by not addressing the, the root cause of autoimmune disease, which I believe is viral. And what are the problems there with taking uh, immune suppressing medications for, for viral infections, for example, or autoimmune diseases? Yeah, they, they immunosuppress, which means people are more likely to get infections. 
in the short term, would you say that that is useful at all? Or is it, you know, long term or short term different in, in sort of the efficacy there of those sort of things? Um, I think that we have to understand that uh, there is a need to suppress overactive immune system activity. So I'm not saying that that we should give a give a, give uh, give up on the idea that you know types of immunosuppressive therapies uh, are not warranted in a clinical situation. Although there's a lot of very interesting research um, that has been applied now to Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a genetic disease that uh, is treated with high doses of steroids. Uh, there are now novel uh, glucocoid receptor antagonists. That don't that that are that are uh, cortisol sparing, meaning that uh, you're, you're able to normalize the immune system as opposed to suppressing it by using these newer types of medications that are anti-inflammatory without being steroid-based. Interesting. So the way I'm, I'm understanding it is that in, in a lot of these autoimmune disorders, um, or when you get you know a viral infection, which then uh, may prompt uh, certain neurological disorders that are inflammatory in nature. You get sort of overactivation of the immune system, um, and what many of these uh, immunosuppressing drugs are doing are sort of bringing it back to the other extreme, where it's too immunosuppressed, and you want it to sort of in the middle. Exactly right. Okay. Okay. I want to dive deeper into all of these things, but first, I really wanted to get more of your backstory because you, you're a very fascinating person to me as somebody who's very interested in neuroscience, uh, because you integrate so many different fields. Uh, which I think is what I found in my own journey of sort of healing from a lot of things like insomnia and depression and anxiety. I found that this really, it's a holistic approach. It's a functional medicine approach to looking at all of these different factors in our lifestyle and seeing how we can sort of make little tweaks here and there to have the biggest impact rather than myopically looking at one sort of solution. Um, you know, you've said before, I think it was the interview with Mark Hyman, that there's no such thing as neurology in the sense that, you know, when you think about treating the brain, there's, you know, impacts from the gut, there's impacts from, you know, uh, your circulation, there's impacts from your environment. And so uh, really what I understood from that is uh, we need to look at this picture more holistically rather than just like, if we're looking at depression, let's just look at the brain sort of thing. And you've said that you're, you're, you know, you're happier now because you have tools to help patients. Um, I'm, I'm interested, what was your, what was it like before you jumped into functional medicine when you didn't have these sort of tools? <laughs> Well, that's a very, very uh, excellent question. So, I, I the 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 word functional medicine uh, is a word that I think has been sort of misappropriated. Uh, the correct terminology for functional medicine, in my opinion, is systems biology, and systems biology recognizes that every organ system is integrated, uh, so that if a person has, for instance, cirrhosis. Um, and neurological problems, there's not a disconnect between those two processes because they occur in the same the same human body. I think a lot of this idea of systems biology, the roots of which uh, come from Chinese medicine, uh, where this is a concept of balancing uh, various types of forces, yin forces and yang forces. And that really, I think, uh, is the birth of functional medicine or, or systems biology. Functional medicine uh, has become sort of a, uh, a formulaic way of approaching patients. And I, I find that uh, as difficult to understand as sort of conventional medicine approaches, uh, meaning that there is a um, an expectation that by doing certain types of things uh, holistically with specific nutrients and specific you know diet and lifestyle, that automatically that a patient who is ill, uh, will no longer be ill by by addressing this in a functional medicine uh, um, framework. So I think there's a dogma of functional medicine that we have to look back on and, and sort of be contrarian to that as well, because systems biology uh, was what functional medicine is based upon uh, is really the root issue about how we think about you know medicine integratively, systems biology. I, I love that answer because I think that's something that I've come to realize very slowly is that uh, everything is is can become a dogma. Everything can become this sort of polarized way of thinking that then uh, entraps you into 
uh, this ideology that then really stifles your creativity for problem solving and innovation. And I, I, I yeah, I love that answer. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, I was wondering in the cases of other doctors uh, and your colleagues potentially uh, who were not um, familiar with this approach of the systems biology approach, um, where they were looking more at the root causes, is it very common for a lot of doctors and healthcare professionals to just sort of feel hopeless and depressed because they can't get their patients better in this way? That's a great question. So, you know, a lot of uh, uh, physicians who practice in conventional medicine are are extraordinarily burnt out. Mm. Um, and many of those physicians become functional medicine doctors. And the the beauty of, of the functional medicine paradigm uh, not to dismiss its value is that it, it does take a holistic approach primarily by establishing trust between the doctor and the patient. So if, if you're experienced with a conventional physician, let's say you have a history of epilepsy and you go to a neurologist with epilepsy, uh, they're only gonna give you the standard of care, meaning that, okay, these are the medications that are approved uh, for seizure disorder. Here's a prescription for that. We'll check your blood levels in a couple of weeks and you know, come back in six months unless your seizures are, are poorly controlled. Um, a functional medicine doctor uh, would take all that information into their consideration, uh, but also develop a rapport with the patient so that the patient feels comfortable asking questions about the treatment um, and modifications of, of accessory uh, types of things, diet, stress, all those other issues. Uh, can be added to the conventional treatment. So I think that, you know, again, I, I like your idea that there's there's this dogma that needs to kind of be um, looked at objectively, because I think the conventional medicine doctors look at functional medicine doctors as being, uh, you know, granola eating, you know, flakes <laughs> that, that believe in spirituality and believe in prayer and all those other things. And the functional medicine doctors, you know, look at the conventional medicine doctors uh, and say, you know, it's it's basically diagnose and adios. Here's your problem. Here's a medication, and you know, good luck and come back in six months unless you have problems before then. So, you know, my goal in life has been to see if there's a way of integrating conventional medicine uh, and functional medicine uh, by really getting to the root cause of disease in general, because then you open up the door for what's called translational medicine, which is what we discussed uh, before the interview. Tell me about that. Um, and for, for anyone listening who doesn't really know what translational medicine is and the importance of that, which we talked about before the podcast, you know, what do you think the role of translational medicine might be in bridging the gap between conventional medicine and functional medicine? Well, that's, that's a gap that keeps getting narrower uh, as time goes on. Uh, and the way that it act, the way that you narrow that gap between conventional medicine, uh, integrative medicine, is really through the promotion of what are called N of one studies. And this is something that uh, I've had personal experience with. Uh, it's it's a recognized uh, approach to serious conditions, meaning that uh, instead of being randomized into a double blind study where a patient can get placebo or an active drug. Uh, instead of that, uh, the patient is their own control. And it's a sort of reiterative process where you, you give something to a patient, you have specific biomarkers that can indicate, you know, uh, the effect of an intervention, along with, you know, clinical uh, assessments, like, you know, in neurology, looking at motor strength and, and all those other issues. But it's a way of actually promoting translational medicine. So translational medicine means is that there are discoveries happening all the time. Uh, there are, you know, old drugs that have been repurposed, uh, that have efficacy uh, for conditions that the drug is not initially approved for. And by doing an N of one study, uh, you could take the translational medicine research into the clinic by actually objectively defining its effects instead of a large randomized study just the effects it has on that one particular patient. So would you say, is it correct to say that translational medicine may be sort of similar to uh, like experimentation? Can you think of it like that? It's, it's experimentation, but it's also uh, what I find, you know, because I, I, I personally treat a lot of patients with ultra serious rare diseases. 
And there, there was a law just instated, um, I think like four or five years ago by Congress called the right to try law, which means, and it's, it's recognized by the FDA that if a person has a, a, a fatal, invariably fatal disease, they have a right to access treatments that are either not approved or, or currently being studied or that have been approved by the FDA for other purposes. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know that that was in some regard, uh, the case with COVID, at least, you know, at the beginning when treatments weren't available, I know that many physicians, several of which I, I interviewed that were uh, sort of experimenting uh, with, with different things that weren't necessarily, you know, they didn't have a randomized controlled trial for X drug, but they were still trying it in their clinic kind of thing. Right. Yep. Now, right now you mentioned that, uh, so you were trained in, in psychiatry um, as well as, you know, in, in neurology, but right now you're more focused on, uh, you know, things like ALS, like Parkinson's, like neurodegenerative uh, uh, conditions. So right now, what are you currently most fascinated by in your research, in your clinical work? Uh, maybe, you know, any stories that are, that are sort of noteworthy from your clinic? Oh, I love that question. So um, I, I've kind of reached, I think, the, uh, the pinnacle of my understanding about ALS particularly. Um, in fact, I'm in the process of writing a paper about my theory of ALS, uh, but I decided recently that I was going to shift my attention back to autism uh, because when I, when I trained in uh, neurology and psychiatry, uh, I had the opportunity to meet uh, a man named Bernie Rimland, uh, who was the father of uh, Rain Man. I don't know if you ever watched the movie about uh, Rain Man. It's an autistic, uh, severely savant autistic uh, patient played by Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. It's a great movie if, if you mm -hmm. haven't watched it. Uh, and Bernie Rimland, when he was still alive, he was a PhD uh, neuroscientist who reached out to me and several other uh, colleagues because we were, we were out-of-the-box thinkers. Uh, and that started sort of the first um, think tank for autism. So when I first came out of my residency, I had seen literally hundreds of children with autism. And uh, one of the things I realized in autism, which has been since validated clinically, is that autism is due to mitochondrial dysfunction. And that led to sort of the idea of, of using compounds like carnitine, coenzyme Q10, and, and others. Uh, but then I kind of said, you know what? Uh, autism is not as challenging as ALS. Let me switch my focus from autism to ALS. Now, I'll tell you a story because you asked about a personal anecdote. Uh, and I would love you to, to consider this in your next podcast to meet this uh, young man. Uh, I, I got a reach out from a family uh, with a 16-year-old autistic son. And my secretary asked me, you know, should I book this appointment? I said, no, you know, I've, I'm really focused on ALS. And they said, no, they really are insisting on seeing you. Like they said, you're the only person that can help my son. I said, all right, I'll, I'll make an exception because, you know, I'd done autism you know, 15 years ago, and that wasn't really, you know, up on the latest, greatest, you know, innovations in, in autism research. So I meet this uh, child, and he was severely autistic, meaning that uh, nonverbal, uh, jumping up and down, very excited, very nervous, blowing, uh, couldn't sit in his, sheet, in his uh, seat. Uh, I'm doing a history with the family, and it's a typical history of, you know, regression at two years of age, yada, yada, yada. And I, I said to the parents, and I don't know why I asked this question, Jorge. I really don't know why I asked it because I never asked this question before for, for an autistic uh, encounter. I said, does your son understand what, what we're talking about? And the mom said, oh yeah, of course. How, what kind of stupid question is that? I, of course he understands everything you're saying. And I go, you really, you really think that, that he understands what we're saying? Like, how do you know? And she says, ask, ask him a question. I said, okay. So I turned to him. And again, totally nonverbal and doing all the motor tics that you expect to see an autistic patient. And I asked him the, 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 uh, the grand slam of questions. The grand slam. I said, what do you think is causing your autism? So he pointed to his mother. She takes out this letter board like a very, very simple letter board, you know, A through Z. And he, he's like this, and he's writing out like for like 15 minutes what, he, what he's writing. And uh, I said, what, 
what actually um, did he say? And, and she said, he wrote that my autism is due to a disconnection between my right frontal lobe and my amygdala. Whoa. <laughs> so this is a kid that you should meet uh, and do a podcast with him because I think that would probably be your best-selling podcast of all time. So if you're interested, I can introduce you to them. Yes, please, please do. <laughs> wow, and so so you're okay. So you've done work with autism, but right now you're mainly focused in on on ALS. Uh, that's fascinating. I, I actually that reminds me. I wanted to ask you, what is it about? Um, the hardest diseases to treat like ALS, which I actually, I didn't know until looking into your work that ALS is really seems to be one of the most serious and terminal conditions that there, that there are. Uh, why are you drawn to those really difficult cases and, and what drives you to pursue them? That That's an amazing question. Thank you for asking it. Um, it's, it's, it's based on my spiritual belief, to be honest with you, that uh, there's always an answer no matter how impossible it seems uh, to get to that answer. Um, and being a, a bedside person, uh, I, I sense the, the fear, the frustration, uh, the heartache uh, that these patients feel uh, when they go to some other doctor and say, you know, look, you have, you know, 18 months to live and get your affairs in order. So I think that's what primarily drives me. That's, um. Yeah, I, I can see that. Would you would you consider yourself to be a highly empathetic or sympathetic uh, individual? Uh, it's 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 a problem, but yes. Yes, it's a problem, but yes. I mean, it's uh, there. There are several physicians I've met just recently, by the way, who have uh, a similar capacity of being empathic, and. Um, it's uh, a quite uh, the best the best doctors in my opinion are empathic doctors, uh, but it takes a huge toll on us. It's a it's a it's a tremendous energy drain uh, to the point where you know people say to me like, why don't you do something easy? You know, do like migraines and you know carpal tunnel syndrome and all those kind of issues like that. And I say anybody can do that. Like that's, that's, that's so easy. You know, carpal tunnel syndrome is the simplest thing in the world to treat. You know, I, I went to medical school uh, with the belief that, that there are answers to questions that no one else has figured out before. And I want to be one of those kinds of people. Um, and I've had, you know, uh, success with rare diseases in my clinical practice, um, which gives me the motivation to, to push harder uh, in, this, in this arena. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. I think, um, you know, I was talking with my previous podcast guest about what things like depression or anxiety can actually teach us, um, which sounds kind of strange. But I, I think in, in my own experience of depression, they, it certainly did did teach me something. And, and to me, it was that, you know, and I don't know if you agree or disagree. But for me, the the learning lesson was that I don't really have I didn't choose to be born. I didn't choose to be born as privileged of a position as I am born in. And it is, it's difficult to see so many people uh, suffering. And that is something that I, I would like to, if I were in that position where I was born in a very non-privileged position where I was, you know, born with some sort of uh, birth defect or genetic abnormality, I would wish somebody in a privileged position was taking care of me. Right. Yeah. And so I, I, yeah, I totally get that. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little. Oh, no, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with me. That's really beautiful, and I think that's why, you know, I, I believe that the universe, you know, we, we there's like a, you know, there's materialists that believe that the universe is completely random. It's capricious. It doesn't really care about anything other than just, you know, bare existence. Uh, and there, there are those that are more spiritually oriented and believe that the universe. Uh, has a capacity for feeling um, in a way that, you know, people like yourself that that focus uh, on the root causes of, of pain in patients and wanting to relieve them uh, is, is really a remarkable 
feather in your cap because I, I think the same way as you do. Uh, meaning that, you know, what is our purpose in life, right? Is our purpose in life just to make a lot of money and ride boats and take dance lessons and, you know, go to baseball games and football games? Or is there a greater purpose in life? Does life, does life, does, does life have purpose? Uh, and I think finding your purpose through healing is ultimately what, what the universe has called you upon to do. And, you know, I think I haven't read, to be totally honest, your book, The Mind of God, although that is on my list of books to read. Uh, where do you see that from a neuroscientific perspective? Where do you see sort of the the purpose, um, the need for a purpose um, from that perspective? You know, first of all, there was a, there was a great book by... Um, I think it was Schrodinger, which was uh, one of Einstein's colleagues that wrote, what is life? And to, to um, consolidate and sort of uh, put into a very simple thing, life is purpose, meaning that, that without purpose, there's no life. You know, even evolution uh, is purposeful, even though people think it's random, it's purposeful in that it's looking for best fit strategies for the organism to survive. So there is a purpose behind, quote, the, the purposelessness of evolution itself. Um, but the idea that, um, you know, people uh, who suffer from depression, for instance, uh, their depression is due to a sense of purposelessness. So if you can sort of, you know, click into that aspect of their depression uh, and to kind of reframe the conversation they're having with themselves, that life, that your life has purpose, and here's what your purpose is, uh, that can really uplift people in a way that a medication can't. Wow. So do you think that, well, it's probably bi-directional from my understanding that, you know, if you, if you don't have a purpose uh, in life and, you know, you spend years sort of not having a purpose and sort of, um, you know, as you said, indulging in these uh, very superficial uh, parts of life, uh, then that may lead into this depression. Um, but also I'm wondering if, can you sort of become depressed by external factors, which then cause you to feel like you have no purpose as sort of like inflammation or infection driving this depression, which then leads you to feel like you have no purpose. Does that make sense? I, I think it's, it's, it's bi-directional. It's not, it's not, yeah. not like uh, A equals B. Right. Um, there's reciprocal relationships between states of consciousness and our biology. Um, and in fact, it's been very well mapped out that uh, people who are depressed um, have a reduction in neurotrophic factors like BDNF, which uh, you know is is very useful to reduce depression. So it's 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 both biological and existential. And I think our 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 concept of putting those into categorical frameworks as opposed to a dimensional relationship between mental states and biological states uh is one of the things that you know translational medicine has actually looked at as opposed to oh depression's all all biological has nothing to do with psychotherapy or, or a sense of purpose in life uh or that everything is basically due to emotions and nothing biological at all of course yeah and here is where we come full circle into this idea of uh dogmatic thinking to the point where we can't see that many things are true at the same time exactly that's right. Now, I wanted to sort of shift over into uh, your work in, in neurology and specifically in neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I, I could talk to you about like things like depression or anxiety or you know consciousness for a long time, but really I, I would like to, to spend some time thinking about your, your main area of, of expertise. Um, and in this question, given what we just talked about, might not be a very good question, but I still want to ask it because I know it's something that most people are thinking about. How much do you think is genetic? How much do you think is actually in our control? There's a concept called epigenetics, which means that a defective gene uh, can be turned on or off based upon epigenetic factors, including stress and depression. So uh, there are very rare examples. I mean, there are diseases that are, are called monogenetic, uh, that if you get that disease, uh, that gene rather, you're gonna develop a, you know, a particular condition. 
Uh, and that's really, that, that puts you sort of in the framework of gene therapies, CRISPR, antisense oligonucleotides for monogenetic diseases. The, the largest majority of, of diseases are polygenetic, uh, including psychiatric diseases. And that means that they're modifiable by epigenetic factors. Got it. So there's this sort of intimate inextricable link between our genetics and our epigenetics, because I mean, genetics, yes, are the blueprint, but like you say, they can be either, you know, they can be modified by our lifestyle factors, by, uh, you know, meditations or by the food that we eat, by the environment that we're in. Yes. Okay. And what would you say, because in, in a lot of your interviews, you've talked about the role that infections play in uh, these neurodegenerative diseases um, with, you know, misfolded proteins being like a major, um, would you say like a major landmark of many neurodegenerative diseases? Could you speak on some of the causes and, and sort of the, the, the progression that you see um, in, in some of your patients here? I think that, uh, you know, one of the uh, sort of observations very important uh, for people to consider is that uh, emotional states, either positive or negative states, uh, affect the biology of any disease, meaning that people that are remain strong and hopeful uh, and have a lot of social community support have better long-term prognoses than those that that lack those types of, you know, support agents around them. Uh, and the question is really how do how do we kind of take that information uh, and make it widely available, uh, even at research centers, so that they consider these, you know, psychological factors as being as important as the genetic research that they're, you know, they're occupied within. Uh, so, you know, my hope is that one day that that will be fully integrated uh, as opposed to, okay, well, if you're depressed, you know, go see a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist knows nothing about the condition the patient's suffering about. And the uh, specialist who's seeing that patient with the condition knows nothing about psychiatry. Uh, there has to be this, you know, true integrative medicine model uh, where physicians begin collaborating again. You know, when I, when I finished my neurology residency, it was routine. Uh, if I saw a patient, I would get on the phone, uh, call the referring doctor, uh, or if the doctor even didn't refer the patient to me, to basically speak uh, to the doctor in, in letter correspondence, whatever, so that there was a uh, collaboration going forward for that, that patient. That has completely 100% uh, dissolved uh, in managed care, where there's this, you know, everyone's in their own little cubicle uh, in their own space. And I'll never forget, uh, someone once told me, I, I was treating a patient that had multiple problems, not just neurological problems, but also rheumatological problems, psychiatric problems, the whole nine yards. And one of the doctors who was taking care of this patient with me said, stay in your own swim lane. Stay in your own swim lane. I mean, you're good at what you do, but I'm better at what I do. So don't, don't ask me questions about the patient since you know nothing about uh, the condition I'm treating. Wow. That, that actually, I've heard that quite a bit. Um, you know, especially during the pandemic, I, I've heard that a lot because you have seen people who aren't necessarily experts in like virology, like MDs, for example, um, who are, let's say, I don't know, they, they treat uh, their pediatric um, oncologist or something. They'll, they'll start researching into virology and, and, you know, they'll say exactly that. I've, I've seen that in social media a lot. It's like, stay in your lane. You're not a virologist. You can't speak on this topic at all. And it's right. like, you were trained in med school to read science. Oh, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I know. It's a, I've had that experience so often. I mean, where like I'll talk to a cardiologist about a patient mm. and saying, look, uh, you know, this patient with ALS uh, has cardiac dysfunction on their echocardiogram. Do you think these two things are related? And he would, this is a typical thing. I, I know nothing about ALS. Uh, all I know is cardiology. So, you know, I can't understand a word that you're talking about, how you're connecting, you know, the cardiac disease to the motor neuron disease. I, I get that on a weekly basis, weekly. So are you saying, um, if I'm understanding right, that that actually, that correspondence, that sort of um, collaboration is is getting worse now? 
I think it's getting uh, more and more uh, uh, restrictive in terms of the cross-fertilization of ideas between specialties, 100%. I mean, think about this. Uh, when I trained, you know, 25 years ago, whatever it was, uh, there was just neurology, right? Mm -hmm. You were a neurologist or you weren't a neurologist. Mm -hmm. Now you have neuromuscular disease specialists, you have stroke specialists, you have interventional neuroradiologists, you have pain specialists, you have epilepsy specialists. So like, for instance, if you refer a patient, you know, with epilepsy uh, and that's the only thing that, that, that they address, they don't address all the other comorbidities because they're only trained in epilepsy. You say, what about the, what about the carpal tunnel syndrome? Uh, yeah, I'll refer them to a carpal tunnel specialist. So right. the, the over-specialization has led to the decline of generalization uh, and the idea of, of general practice of medicine, you know? Yeah. Being just a GP. That seems crazy to me, especially because we're living in a world where we can literally text people on the other side of the world in, a, in less than a few seconds. Exactly. Wow. And, and what do you think, I mean, is, is the solution to just have like your own clinic where you have a bunch of different specialties in one building working together? Like, what are your thoughts there? My thoughts are that um, I think that physicians uh, need to be trained in what I call intuitive medicine. Intuitive medicine is, is something either you have or you don't have, but I believe it can, it can be trained. And what, what do I mean by intuitive medicine? So um, we have two hemispheres of our brain, left hemisphere, right hemisphere of our brain, right? Left hemisphere is just the facts. It's completely objective. Uh, it has no consideration for subjectivity at all. Mm -hmm. Right hemisphere of the brain is exactly the opposite. It's very much uh, um, relationship oriented. It's, it's uh, and it's subjective. It, it, it processes the emotional state of a system. Now, neither extreme is good, right? If you're completely intellectual and devoid of, of any kind of feeling or emotional state or intuition, you become like very robotic. You know, it's like, it's like almost like uh, AI, you know, which yeah. is, like, you know, basically pure left brain uh, functionality. And even my, my concern with AI is that, that there are things that are facts that are objective, but there's a subjective truth to a human being's life as well. So unless you're able to uh, access that and to learn about that, uh, you're really, you know, on the other extreme of, of behaviors. So that I think that would be, you know, my wish or my vision would be that we uh, establish some type of intuitive medicine training uh, to people that uh, need to understand that that is something that that you can learn, uh, and it'll help your your relationship with the patient when you're in that re in that sort of realm. So this is very interesting to me because I think there's a lot of hype around AI right now, and and basically doing everything and you know taking over. The idea is that they're going to take over all our jobs, and that even you know medicine is also going to be that way. There's actually a clinic. Um, you know, I've uh, I'm in, I'm in Miami right now. There's actually a clinic here that is uh, basically. Um, the foundation of which is based on AI. Like you walk in and you don't talk to a person, you just go on a screen, they get your vitals all like in this machine and you don't even ever look at a human until you finally get into the doctor's office and you have a conversation with them, which is which is insane to me. Uh, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense that yes, you can gain all of this analytical insight from this AI, but the the human touch, the, the subjective experience of depression or the subjective experience of ALS is something that AI may not be able to touch. Right. Yep. Now, getting back to the other causes of neurodegenerative diseases. So you mentioned that having a sense of purpose is very important that, you know, this, this socio, social and psychological uh, factor here of, of feeling like you're connected to people uh, is is very important and they tend to have better uh, outcomes uh, than the people who who don't have that social connection and who don't have that sense of purpose in their life. On the biological side of things, where do you see, is there like a, it's probably not linear, but is there something close to that? I know you've mentioned like infections, you've mentioned the misfolded proteins, you mentioned oral health in the past, kind of walk me through, where do we start? <laughs> it's a great question, but you're, you're a fantastic interviewer. Thank you. You are. 
Um, so here's something I recently discovered, uh, and I hope I can explain this to people that are, you know, non-neuroscientists and also who aren't virologists. But um, all of the ability to learn uh, in the brain is based upon a specific group of proteins that actually regulate synaptic neurotransmitter levels. It turns out that the proteins involved in learning uh, have exactly the same structural elements as viral proteins. In fact, a large portion of the human genome uh, is viral. So we've, we've evolved with viruses, basically, uh, and they're always within us. When, when a person has COVID-19 infection or herpes or, or anything else like that, uh, the only reason that they don't remain fully symptomatic is because they're in a, in a quiescent or, or a, a hibernation stage. And that hibernation stage uh, gets reactivated to an active infectious stage based upon stress and, and immune depressive mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So once we understand that, that these infections are, are really driving mutations, I, I believe that infections are the drivers of mutations, um, that we can get a deeper understanding uh, regarding how we can actually uh, have antiviral therapies that are based upon uh, attacking their memory, attacking their their sort of you know intracellular brain, so that they're not able to adapt uh, to host sterile processes, right? So T cells are sort of the primary signaler of infections, including viral infections. T cells have memory, right? So what what do viruses do? Part of, part of their tricks are to suppress T cell memory. So the T cells no longer recognize that the virus is a virus, uh, and that's how they that's how they suppress the host immune system. So why not do the same thing against them? In other words, instead of you know they're attacking our memory centers, we attack their memory centers, and that's kind of you know the research I'm working on right now. And how would you say for people hearing that uh, you know infections can lead to mutations? What do you exactly mean there, and how do you translate that to this? Uh, to this misfolding of proteins? So um, when you have a, uh, a genetic defect, let's say an ALS or you know Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever it is, uh, the gene becomes uh, um, not able to produce a protein in its, in its right sort of three-dimensional structure. Um, and that's, that's what causes misfolding. Now, there's lots of evidence that that is genetically mediated because if you have, you know, an abnormality in a specific gene sequence that doesn't make the protein in its proper formation, mm -hmm. that uh, you're gonna get a misfolded protein. But I believe that that viral infections create the same mutation that leads to a misfolded protein, just as a genetic cause would. Wow. Okay. So so this is interesting because I think. The, the pop media perspective of this uh, misfolded proteins and protein aggregation thing is that it's things in our environment that are causing this, this uh, protein misfolding rather than, and I mean, that may be true, but it may be, as you're saying, it's mediated by a problem in, in the gene. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Okay. And infections are just another way which hijack this proper protein folding. Correct. Okay. Okay, and how exactly do these viruses do that? It's a very, very complicated uh, answer, but uh, what viruses do is first they enter the cytoplasm, right, of a cell. And then from the cytoplasm of a cell, they enter into the nucleus. Uh, and once they're in the nucleus, they're able to literally change the, the program of our DNA and our RNA to their advantage. So that it's like it's like basically uh, hijacking uh, in the pilot in the pilot seat to take control of the airplane, um, and that's what I think leads to the mutations that that are associated with with ALS particularly. Meaning that I think these mutations are due uh, because a lot of times when I've seen patients with mutations in ALS, and you do a family history, 
none of them have uh, the same history, which kind of sort of is against the dogma that these are only transferred through, you know, somatic mutations from, you know, a father, son, or, you know, or from a mother to a child. So my, my theory is that, that most of these diseases uh, that we think are genetically mediated, which I believe are genetically mediated, mm-hmm. are induced by viral dysfunction of the DNA or the RNA. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And where where are we getting these viruses from? Are they already like living inside us, sort of like the microbiome where we already have them inside us and they're inert, but they can become active? Is that what's happening? Sure. I mean, there's, you know, we, every single person is exposed to every single virus. It's that many of us are lucky, for instance, you know, getting exposed to COVID-19 uh, and not developing an infection uh, is because our immune systems are able to suppress the uh, infectivity of a virus. But we're exposed to, you know, hundreds of different viruses, you know, all through our lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, chicken pox, uh, herpes, herpes simplex viruses, Epstein-Barr virus. Epstein-Barr virus is a very, very common virus strongly associated with multiple sclerosis, um, which I wrote about in 1997. By, so if you, if you read the Brain Wellness Plan, you'll see that I, I put that theory out there 25 years ago. Now I get emails from my from my friends saying, hey, did you know the Epstein-Barr virus is related to MS? I'm like, did I know about it? I wrote about it 25 <laughs> years ago. But uh, that's an example of being too early instead of being too late. Is... So these viruses that we're exposed to, um, which may or may not be activated, it, it sounds like we have some amount of control regarding whether they are actually activated and cause some sort of pathology in us or not. Is that true? Do we have some sort of control and whether you know some pathogens get activated and cause damage and some just stay inert? Right, exactly. So Epstein-Barr virus is a, is a perfect example. There's the coalescent phase and also the lytic phase. The lytic phase is when the virus is active and produces you know, damage to the host. The convalescent phase, it's still active, but the virus is not replicating. So there are specific immune system mechanisms uh, that hopefully are able to suppress, because once, once it's in the cytoplasm, you know, unless there's a full ability for our immune systems to get to it at that point, uh, it's going to stay there forever. There's, there's, you know, it's like, it's like a bad marriage as an example, you know, you get exposed to an infection, uh, you're locked into that infection for your whole life, but hopefully your immune system is able to control it from going from a coalescent phase to actually a lytic phase. So I've been looking at specifically at what are the specific pathways, uh, that viruses use to become lytic, uh, and what are the immune system ways of preventing the conversion from a, from a coalescent phase to a lytic phase. That's currently what the research I'm involved in. I'm just trying to understand. It's very, very, very complex. And uh, just to clarify, coalescent means like sort of inert and lytic means inert. active. It's like a sleeping state. Okay. It's still in your house, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not eating your food yet. Got it. Okay. And so basically by, uh, by keeping it inert. Are, are there things in our lifestyle, by the way, that we can do to sort of keep it inert, to sort of uh, uh, support our immune system so that they don't become active and cause damage? Sure. I mean, uh, it's a very uh, hard topic to to validate, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's all based on anecdotal evidence. Uh, but certain you know, supplements like vitamin D, for instance, has been shown in certain levels to prevent reactivation of, of various viruses. Um, zinc mm-hmm. uh, also may have some antiviral effects. Uh, but I think there's there needs to be a deeper exploration into the specific mechanisms. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a broad stroke. Uh, I think that, you know, where translational medicine is going is to understand what are the specific activating uh, pathways that go from a convalescent stage to a... Uh, a lytic phase. And that's, that's, you know, a very, very deep question. There's not a really clear answer at this point uh, regarding the answer to that question though. Okay. Interesting. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, 
the mechanisms of these uh, misfolded proteins. Um, you've mentioned in the past that uh, you know these can aggregate and sort of uh, cause cause problems in the brain, leading to neurodegeneration. Uh, sort of two of the things which I have heard of from your interviews that uh, are helpful in in sort of preventing against this are uh, the heat shock protein and the lysosomes. Could you talk a little bit about those? Wow, where'd you? Uh, you must have done your homework. I do my homework, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a um, a mechanism of of how our immune systems eradicate infectious material, whether it's viral, bacterial, fungal, um, or even parasitic, uh, which revolves around uh, lysosomes. Lysosomes are like a, a boiling hot water, uh, except think of this in in a cell itself as opposed to uh, you know, the analogy itself. That boiling hot water uh, is very acidic, meaning it's a very highly acidic uh, state. And what the lysosome does in that regard is it relies on uh, certain types of proteins called heat shock proteins that are able to identify uh, various types of bacterial, viral, um, parasitic, uh, they act as chaperones, meaning that they bind to those uh, infectious material and take them to the lysosome to be dissolved. Now, what happens on an evolutionary basis uh, is that these infections have evolved to understand these mechanisms uh, and secrete uh, enzymes that neutralize the lysosome so that if you go back to the analogy of, you know, you try to make chicken soup and instead of throwing it into hot boiling water, you're throwing it into, uh, you know, water that's not boiling at all. So the chicken stays there uh, and you go to see if it's cooked enough. And if you eat it, you're going to get salmonella poisoning. Uh, and if you don't eat it, you're going to wonder, well, you know, why is this not cooking? So these viruses have, have are secreting uh, certain molecules called phosphates um, that are highly basic, that end up reducing the pH of the lysosome to prevent the lysosome from breaking down the proteins that are infection. Got it. So it sounds like the heat shock proteins are sort of like the bouncers at a club finding people who are sort of causing trouble and kicking them out. Right. Okay, interesting. And these lysosomes are important because they can degrade and get rid of these problematic proteins? Exactly. Okay, got it. Uh, there was something else that you mentioned, uh, because the way I'm sort of framing it in my mind now is there there seem to be several different mechanisms by which uh, the sort of uh, pathophysiology of, of neurodegeneration happens. So, you know, we obviously we mentioned the misfolded proteins and their aggregation and the dysfunction of the lysosomes. Um, are, are there also, by the way, like problems with the heat shop proteins not doing their job correctly? And is that something that can be targeted? Yes. Um... It's also a very complicated pharmacology, but um, there are uh, drugs and and nutraceuticals that actually can increase the generation of, of certain heat shock proteins. Um, there's a drug that was in trials for ALS called aroclimolol, uh, which actually induces heat shock protein 70 and, and heat, uh, hypothermia, uh, fever, uh, Fever is the best antiviral that there is uh, because when you have a fever, you're activating heat shock protein 70s um, that are designed to uh, prevent the degradation of host proteins while breaking down the proteins that belong to viruses or infections. So if you, if you want to know the best anti-infective agent, it's what nature gave us, which is fever. Are you a proponent of sauna use and uh, oh, yeah. cold therapy? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, when, which you mentioned, there are some nutraceuticals that could be helpful here. Which, which of those seem promising? Um, you know, I have to go back on my notes cause I, off the top of my head, I don't remember looking at this problem since you brought it up. So um, I don't want to speak out of turn about uh, what things actually increase heat shock proteins. Uh, Main, the most most of them are what are called isothiocyanates from broccoli and cauliflower. Um, those you know the cruciferous vegetables have a lot of way of promoting heat shock protein seventy. 
the certain herbs have been looked at, ginseng, uh, ginkgo biloba, um, quercetin. These are all, you know, agents that may have uh, the anti-infective effects by promoting heat shock protein 70 as well. Got it. And, and there was a final problem, which I, uh, I saw that you mentioned previously in, in either it was a blog article, I think, um, which, which you said that taking, you know, supplements to help the brain may not matter if you don't have proper perfusion or blood flow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? <laughs> do you want to do an internship with me, Jorge? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. We, we can do it in Costa Rica or New York. I prefer Costa Rica, to be <laughs> <Okay>. honest. <laughs> so it's, build it and, and I will come. How's that? Okay. <laughs> um, but to answer your question uh, in more detail, the, uh, the, the heat shock protein 70 uh, um, pathway uh, is something that, uh, like you just said before, can be activated by by diet and lifestyle. Um, I've had several patients, uh, you know, post had long COVID uh, symptoms, for instance, that benefited from, you know, daily saunas, uh, interchangeable with, with really cold showers. Uh, not pleasant, but they've been able to correct their chronic fatigue and their brain fog mm -hmm. uh, through very simple modalities like that. And so is this is this problem with perfusion also a, oh, okay. a, 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 a right? Yeah. Is, yeah. is this also like a problem of the um of the protein misfolding, or is that some other sort of um uh, unrelated pathology that also that also happens? Okay. So uh, when we say that a person has atherosclerosis, for instance, which is you know heart disease, stroke, all those sort of you know various. Um, you know, problems that, that occur in patients uh, with heart disease uh, is caused by platelet aggregation, right? Platelet aggregation is misfolded platelets. So the idea is, and this, this uh, comes from uh, some research that was done by uh, a neuropathologist who, I, when I did my rotations in neuropathology um, many, many years ago, uh, demonstrate that in ALS patients, uh, particularly, they have vascular abnormalities. So we think of ALS as only being, uh, you know, a, a neurological disease, but it may be a neurological disease secondary to vascular impediments, where these misfolded proteins prevent the vascular supply to the brain and the spinal cord. The spinal cord, particularly, is very, very vulnerable to ischemia. Very. Oops. Got it. Got it. Okay. So if, if I'm understanding correctly, then is it, is it possible? It doesn't make sense to sort of have a, a flow of um, sort of in a rough order of events uh, where let's say this infection, um, you know, is not inert anymore. And then it causes this misfolding of protein, the lysosome no longer works. So you get this aggregation of proteins and then uh, that causes this aggregation to where you're not getting normal perfusion anymore. And then this is sort of exacerbating everything. That's right. Okay. You know, cells can't survive without blood flow. And like, like you heard me in the other interview, uh, you can take as many drugs as you want or vitamins, but if there's not adequate perfusion to the areas that need them, it's really not going to work very well. Got it. And, and on the, on the side of uh, proper blood flow in the brain, are there some nutraceuticals that you can also target here? Or, or is the approach just mainly to, you know, mention like the sauna and the cold therapy that you mentioned to, to help the protein misfolding? I, I recommend to a lot of my patients, unless there's like contraindications like peptic ulcers or, or bleeding or, you know, GI problems, uh, taking a low dose aspirin. Uh, aspirin, I think is, you know, the best neuroprotective agent uh, ever discovered by 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 man, um, and that actually reduces platelet irrigation and increases blood flow. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I, I had heard the thing about aspirin before, not in this context, uh, but I don't know if you know the there was a researcher, a nutritional researcher named uh, Dr. Raymond Pete, 
um, who became very controversial and very popular because he one of the things that he did talk about was taking low dose aspirin um, for prevention of neurodegenerative diseases. So that's interesting. Oh, really? What, and is he still around or is he? Going- he recently died a couple of weeks ago, actually. Raymond Pete. Raymond Pete. Yeah. P-E-A-T. Yep. Okay. Yeah. He was fascinating. Um, I'll, I'll send you a link to, to his website. He has some cool, some cool articles. Um, is there anything else that you would recommend in terms of improving this, uh, this circulation? Physical exercise, mm-hmm. um, reducing your intake of, uh, certain saturated fats, um, going, I, my personal opinion is going on a vegetarian diet, although that's a very controversial topic. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, animal meat particularly, uh, can lead to atherosclerotic changes, whereas a high protein vegetarian diet can be uh, devoid of those adverse effects from, from eating, uh, saturated fats. I mean, you can get saturated fats from, from nuts, avocados, and things Mm -hmm. like that without getting from meat. Interesting. Uh, I also think that, uh, one of the, the key issues that I've seen, uh, particularly in my autism practice, is that there's a reduction of mitochondria uh, due to uh, alterations in porphyria metabolism, which is another whole discussion that would take a lot longer than the podcast will allow us to do. But uh, to cut to the chase, um, chlorophyll-based products, uh, wheatgrass and, and other uh, chlorophyll-enriched products, mm-hmm help generate mitochondria. That's fascinating. Yeah, I had a um, this this nutrition uh, specialist in, in spirulina and chlorella actually come on the podcast and yeah. um, she mentioned some of those benefits as well. That's interesting. Jorge, I think I need to run. Okay, uh, okay. I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, before we go, where can people find out more about your work? Okay, great. So they can uh, call uh, my office and ask for Michelle. My office uh, phone number is 845-634-1119. This way they can get to meet the person uh, as opposed to just looking at, you know, the internet and trying to find out where I am. Perfect. Awesome. And I'll include the links to your website um, and your books in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jorge. I hope we can keep in touch. I really do. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.